Now, Genesis 1 and 2 both deal with the creation story. And in some people's minds, this presents a conflict or a problem. For you see, we see man being created in chapter 1 on the sixth day. And then we read about man being created again in chapter 2. And some people see a problem, but there is none. You see, chapter 1 tells creation story with a wide-angle lens. It's the big picture. Chapter 2 zooms on in. It's a zoom lens coming up close and personal, dealing with specifically the creation of man. So in chapter 1, you have the wide-angle view. In chapter 2, it's zeroing in on what was already touched on in chapter 1, the creation of man, and giving us some greater detail and some fuller understanding. So there are not two creations of man, one in chapter 1, another in chapter 2. That's not true. But rather, chapter 2 is up close and personal, giving us a little more in-depth understanding of how the Lord formed man and then brought the woman to man and joined them together in that garden wedding, in the Garden of Eden. Well, we left off in verse 4 of chapter 2 in our galloping through Genesis, racing through the Scriptures. My goodness. <laughs> now these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice the word heavens is plural. Some people say, well, that contradicts verse 1 of Genesis 1 where it declares in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Well, Genesis 1.1 should also be plural. The word heaven is heavens in 1.1 in the Hebrew text. Now I point that out to say this. When you read about the Lord creating the heavens or talking about the heavens. It needs to be remembered that the scriptures speak of heavens in three levels, or three dimensions, if you would. The first heaven, talked about, for example, in Daniel chapter 4, is where the fowls fly, where the geese soar, the ducks go, the, the, the atmosphere, if you would. The sky directly over us is the first heaven, Daniel chapter 4. The second heaven is where the stars are. Psalm 19 says the heavens, what? Declare the glory of God. The message of the stars, Psalm 19 goes on to say, is heard in every land, in every language throughout history. So, you have the first heaven... That is the sky right above us, the atmosphere over us. The second heaven, which is the stars. And then the third heaven. You might remember how Paul declared that he was caught up into the third heaven. And there it says he saw things in the third heaven that were 
too wonderful for him to articulate. He said, it would be unlawful for me to speak of or write about the things that I saw. Whether I was dead or alive, I don't know, he said. But I was caught up into the third heaven. So the third heaven is the place that will all be those of us who are believers, who are Christians. That's the place we'll be ultimately. We're going to heaven, you see. So you have heaven in those three levels. The first heaven, the atmosphere where the birds fly, Daniel 4. The second heaven, where the stars are, Psalm 19. And the third heaven, the place that Paul was caught up to and the place that we will soon be at because I'm looking for the Lord to come back any moment. Oh, happy day that'll be. So God created the heavens and the earth. All three and the earth, you see. And verse 5 goes on to tell us, Every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew, the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So as God created the heavens and then he created the earth, and that was talked about in the first chapter, and yet we are now told that there was no rain falling on the earth, but rather a mist came up from the earth. The Lord evidently had sort of a built-in sprinkler system <laughs> on automatic timer that kept everything watered, but there was no rain falling on the earth. We won't have rain falling on the earth until the day of Noah, when that water canopy that we talked about that evidently used to surround the atmosphere that kept everything tropical on the planet and allowed men to live long days for it acted as, if you would, a way in which the ultraviolet rays would be filtered. It kept the aging process in check quite a bit. That canopy, that water canopy that Genesis chapter 1 talked about that we studied previously, will collapse and deluge the world in the time of Noah. But up until that time of Noah, there was no rain. So how was the vegetation taken care of? How were things kept lush and green? A mist came up from the earth. The Lord had engineered a built-in watering system that kept everything lush and all the vegetation growing. Then, verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. What a scene. This is one of those things I want to see on videotape when we get to heaven. Here's God. And he begins to gather dust from the ground. And from that dust he fashions man. And then the body is there, but not animated until the Lord breathes into the nostrils of man. 
and man became a living soul. The word breath, as you may know, and wind and spirit is all the same word in the Hebrew. It's ruach, R-U-A-C-H. So too in the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, breath, wind, and spirit are all the same word, pneuma. Interesting, breath, the life, the spirit. Here is man, and man does not become a living soul until God breathes into man. And that is when man becomes truly an entity. Not at the time when his body was formed, but at the time when the Lord breathed life into him. Man becomes a living soul right then, you see. Most interesting. Made up of dust. In fact, Adam, his name would imply just that. We could translate, if you would, the name Adam as man, or getting back into the root of the word, dusty. That would be his name, quite literally. Coming from the ground. His name means Adam, liter uh, man literally, but the root of the word gets back to the stuff from which he was made, dust. So what you say? Here's what. In Psalm 103, we read, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion upon us, for he remembers our frames, and he knows that we are but dust. <laughs> I like that. He knows what I'm made of. Dust. Ever feel dirty? Ever feel earthy? You know what the deal is? There can be a tendency for people like you and me to say, hmm, I'm made of dust, eh? Well, I don't think so. I'm going to get my thing together. I'm not going to be dusty. I'm not going to be earthy. But God declares in Psalm 103, I am remembering constantly, he says, that you are made of dust, that you're earthy. In fact, Paul would say in the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, you have this treasure, Jesus Christ, in earthen vessels, earthy pots, if you would. Now here's the problem. Many of us say, huh, the treasure of Jesus Christ in me? My pot's not going to be earthy or earthen or dusty. I'm going to polish my pot. I'm going to paint my pot. I'm going to beautify my pot. I'm going to brandish my pot. And so we go about trying to beautify our pot. But you know what? The Lord says, I have specifically chosen to put my treasure, my son, in earthy pots. Why? Well, if you go to an art museum 
where there are masterpieces, Rembrandts, Da Vinci's, whatever it might be, some fancy, fabulous, expensive art treasure, you will never see a masterpiece framed with flashing neon lights. It will never be. You'll never see a treasure, a masterpiece, framed with gaudy gold and jewels. Because that would distract from the masterpiece. The frame is to be simple. The frame is to be not really noticed. That the attention might be upon the masterpiece, you see. So what does the Father do? He says, I want the attention upon the Master. So what will I do? I'll put the treasure of the Master in clay pots. (laughs) And we say, I'm going to shine my pot up real bright. (laughs) And we say, I'm going to get my pot really together. And in reality, all that does with our religiosity is it takes the attention off of the masterpiece, off of the treasure, and it puts it upon the painted-up pot, upon the vessel. And people notice the vessel and talk about the vessel and are focused on the vessel. And the Lord says, that's not my intention. My intention was to place the treasure in earthen vessels, that the treasure might be what is noticed, you see, not the pot. So what are you saying, John? I am saying that I am convinced as a Bible student, as a pastor, as one who has walked with the Lord for quite a while now, I'm convinced personally that the Lord expects less out of you than most of you expect out of yourself. We think, I've got to paint my pot. The Lord says, paint your pot, not. Don't do that. What are you doing? I remember your frame. I know where you're at. And I have chosen to place my treasure in earthen pots. In fact, over and over in the Old Testament, the Lord says, when you make an altar, make sure that you use uncut stones. Do not put any tools on the stones. Don't try to beautify the stones because then if you work on the stones... People's attention will be on the stones and not on the sacrifice that's there on the altar. It's a real danger in church life, in religiosity. Fancy stuff. Golden altars, polished pots, can take people's focus off of the masterpiece and off the sacrificed lamb and put it on the stuff that people have made and polished up and beautified. Are you with me? So what are you saying? I'm saying relax. God knows what you're made of. Dirt. He remembers your frame. Dust. He understands that you're earthy. Well then what are we to do with these earthen pots and the treasure that is within I'll tell you what to do. The Lord doesn't want me to beautify my pot, polish my pot, brandish my pot. 
But the Lord gives us a story that tells what really is to be, that the treasure might be seen flowing from you and from me. Judges chapter 7, Gideon had 300 guys, and they were battling against the Midianites who were innumerable. There was just gazillions of Midianites there in the valley, and Gideon had 300 guys. You know the story. The Lord says, that's enough. And what I want you to do, Gideon, is to give each one of those 300 a trumpet, a horn, and an earthen vessel. Ah, an earthen vessel and a torch that's lit. And Gideon, have the men take that torch, the light, and place it in the earthen vessel, in the pot. And then spread yourself around in the mountains that are surrounding the valley where the gazillion Midianites are camping. And then on a given signal, blow the trumpet. Blow the trumpet. And have everybody shout, The sword of the Lord in Gideon! And then have them break their earthen vessels. Because when the breaking of the vessel happens, the torchlight will come pouring out. Okay. And so Gideon that night did what he was told to do, and he had the guys surrounding the Midianites, and they blew the horns, and they broke the pots, and the light came pouring out, and the Midianites heard the crashing of the broken pots, and saw the light, and heard the trumpet, and they stumbled out of their tents, and you know what they thought? That each one of those horns and trumpets. Each one of those represented tons of men. But that was a whole company, you see. It was really just one guy. They were freaked out, and they, the Midianites grabbed their swords, and still kind of wiping away the sleep from their eyes, they began to fight, and they began to hatch up, chop up each other. Not hatch up. They hacked up and chopped up each other until the Midianites were just wiped out. And a great victory was won, and God got the glory. But here's the key for you to see, for me to remember. The light comes out. The enemy is beaten back, done in, wiped out. When the pot, the earthen vessel, is not beautified, but broken. In other words, the Lord wants you, wants me, to be crackpots. <laughs> what do you mean, John? Just to be broken. Not to say, aren't we hot? But rather, man, got chipped away here, broken there. You know what comes out? The treasure, the light. Jesus is the light, you see. And he pours out when the pot is cracked. When hard times come, when there's difficult stuff going on, that's when the light is seen pouring from you. You've seen it. Somebody goes through a broken, a, a, a difficulty, a, a breaking season, and you see then, man, I see the light of the Lord pouring through you. 
Not when you're polishing your pot, but when you're just broken. When you're cracked a bit, you see. Well, be that as it may. God says, I know what you're made of. I know you're earthy. I know you're dust. You're an earthen vessel, and I've chosen to place my son and the light that he is within pots, vessels that are earthen. And when they're cracked and when they're broken, man, that's when the light comes out. And that's when there's victory over the Midianites, the enemy, you see. Well, the Lord God planted, after he now makes Adam, he plants a garden eastward, verse 8, in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and came into four heads. The name of the first, verse 11, is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And there is Bedellium and the onyx stone. The name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekel, or as your margin reads, the Tigris. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. The fourth is the Euphrates. Most of you have heard of or are aware of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. We know where they are. The other two rivers, we do not know their exact location. But there, these four rivers formed evidently boundaries or borders for this garden called Eden. Eden means delight. It was a delightful place. This garden that the Lord made in which He would place man. The Lord God, verse 15, took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now that doesn't mean that Adam was made a gardener vocationally. But rather, it was not vocational, it was recreational. He was placed in the garden and he got to tend the garden, but it was recreation for him. It wasn't occupation. It was a recreational thing for him to do, an outlet for creativity. Well, the Lord God commanded the man, verse 16, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Look around, Adam. All kinds of trees and all kinds of stuff and all kinds of pleasures and wonderful things that are awaiting for you. But, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. All these trees, eat what you want, do what you will. But there's one tree 
that if you eat from it, it'll kill. Would you notice here that God does not say, if you eat of that tree, I'm going to kill you. It says, if you eat of the tree, it will kill you. What are you suggesting, John? I'm saying that in that fruit that was on that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was something evidently that was perhaps carcinogenic, something that was chemical, I don't know, but something that would cause men to begin to die. God is not saying, if you eat of that tree, I'm going to kill you. He's saying, if you eat of that tree, you'll poison yourself and it's going to hurt you badly. It will do you in. See, I, I know you know this, but parents, grandparents, need your help on this. Because our kids that go through church all too often don't get it. They think as I did for many years growing up in a church, that, man, if I sinned, God would track me down. God would do me in. He would come and crack me over the head. That's not, that's not Father God. That's the Godfather. That's, that's, that's not the way Father God is. He's Abba. Any more than you would... Bop your kids with a two-by-four if they did something they shouldn't do. That's not your heart. If, if one of your kids does something that they shouldn't do, you're not going to say, okay, boom, and blast them with a shotgun or bop them with a two-by-four. You don't do that. So why would you think God would? But I do tell my kids, and you tell your kids, if you... Benny, choose to play football on the freeway. You're not going to be doing real good, buddy. In the day that you do that, you will surely die, Ben. Mary, if you choose to swallow that bottle of rat poison, in, in the day that you do that, you will surely die. I'm not saying, Mary, if you swallow that bottle, I'm going to kill you. I'm saying, Mary, if you do that, it will kill you. See, this is simple, but people don't get it. Our kids grow up and they think, well, if I do something wrong, God is going to track me down. No, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. The sin tracks you down. The sin wipes you out. Well, you say, that doesn't help me because I still have a problem with this story. Why would God allow a poisonous tree, so to speak, be in the middle of the garden? I mean, why would He allow that to be there in the first place, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because... God desires to have a loving relationship with man. 
with Adam and Eve initially, with you and me presently. God desires for us to relate to Him in love. Therefore, love, listen, love, understand this, love demands that there be a choice. Without choice, there is no real love. Love must have an option. If Tambo, my wife here, if she married me, but I was the only male on the face of the earth, I would wonder, does she really love me, or is it just because there's no other choice, no other option? But if there's another guy on the face of the earth, and she chooses me, I go, hey, that's meaningful. Because she didn't have to. She had an option. She could have chosen him. But instead she chose me. Hey, that's love. Love demands a choice. Without choice, there can be no real love. God could have forced His love on us, but forced love is rape. And so God who is love and wants a loving relationship with you and with me, what does He say? He says, here's your choice. And Adam, if you want to dump me, if you want to kill our relationship, if you want to turn your back, I've got to provide you this opportunity. All you have to do, Adam, if you want to dump me, is eat from that tree. Without a choice, there could be no love. And the Lord is so good because He made it as scary as possible. He said, if you eat from that tree, it's going to kill you. If you want to do that, you can't. I mean, what else could the Father have done to make it right to provide a choice but to say, don't go there, don't do that? You see. Now, why was that tree called the name that it was given? The knowledge of good and evil. Because if man chose to eat from that tree, he would be declaring, I am knowingly choosing evil and not good. I am knowingly choosing to rebel against you, to turn my back on you, to not be obedient to you. But there's another level of meaning here. And that is this. When man ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was the time when he began to die physically and did die spiritually. But something else happened. We'll see in chapter 3 in our study next time that Satan said, if you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll know good and evil. You'll be like God. And in a sense, Satan was right. It was a twisted, perverted understanding, but there is a true point that he was making. Man eats of the tree and he looks and he goes, I'm naked? And then God will track him down as we will see and man says, well I was hiding because I'm naked and the Lord says, who told you that? How did you know that? Which means this, before man ate 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't know good and evil. He would have to ask the Father about every single matter, about every situation. Father, how do I tackle this? Father, what about that? And they walked together, the Father and Adam, in the cool of the day, and they were in constant communion because Adam didn't know. He had to walk in dependency. Now, think with me. This is the danger of knowing good and evil. Paul put it this way. Knowledge puffs up. Even Bible knowledge, theological knowledge, scriptural knowledge can be dangerous and defeating. What? Yes. If a person begins to say, Hey, I've been to Bible school. I've been to cemetery. I've been reading seminary. I've been reading the Word for years. <laughs> I've gone through the Bible for 20 years with you, John. I know good and I know evil. And if you're not careful, listen, if you're not careful, what will happen is this. You'll get puffed up and you won't talk to the Father and walk with the Father because I know what's good and I know what's evil. And suddenly you become independent. Knowledge can actually make you independent from Him because I know what's good. I know what's evil. And that is absolutely death. It kills. The knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit, it kills. Well, John, aren't we supposed to know the Bible? Yes. But the knowledge that we are after is to get in the Word and go through the Word and have fellowship with the Lord personally, talking to Him constantly, worshiping, praising, communing, dialoguing, loving, listening, not just studying theology and gaining more knowledge academically. Because if you're simply approaching it academically, intellectually, theologically, you will be puffed up. And you'll say, I don't got to pray about that. I know the answer to this. You say, well, is God wanting me to be in a codependent relationship with Him? Does He want me to be in that place? He wants you to be in total dependency on Him because He loves you and because He has great things to share with you as He whispers in your ear, because He wants to bless you beyond belief. And this is why it's so tough for men, for you guys specifically, because we're always trying to get our kids that we're raising to become independent. When they take their first steps on their own, we say, yay, buddy, way to go. When they begin to tie their own shoe and begin to ride a bike and finally learn to drive a car, when they finally move out, we say, hey, hooray, good. If they're launched successfully, we go, great, I want to get my son independent. But the Father in heaven, he wants just the opposite with you and with me. 
He wants us in total dependency. And this is a tough one. He wants you to be constantly talking to Him, leaning on Him, like Adam used to do before he ate of the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, when he would say, Father, how do I handle this? Father, what about that? Talking to the Father, walking with the Father, and then drawing from the Father blessings. Well, be careful. Because the same tree, the knowledge of good and evil, can be a killer for you and a killer for me. It can begin to squeeze the life out of our relationship with the Lord if we're not oh so careful. So when you read your Bible, when you study theology, fine, important, good for you, but make sure it doesn't become an end in itself. This book is in reality a doorway for me to go through to talk to the Father and fellowship with the Father. That's why I always encourage you to, when you're studying, pray while you're reading. Don't just gain information, but rather experience intimacy while you're reading. Talk to the Lord. Pour out your heart before the Lord while you're reading. Otherwise, you will be a dead, dry Christian. All this knowledge, you know life. So, that tree was forbidden. The knowledge of good and evil. When you eat it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, verse 18, as He now sees Adam having every opportunity to enjoy all of creation except there's one tree that was forbidden, knowledge. It'll kill you, Adam. When you become independent of me. The Lord God now looks at Adam and he says, It is not good that man should be alone. All that God had made in the first chapter, after each day he would say, It is good. It is very good. And then in chapter 2, he looks at man when he made him and said, It's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. So I will make him a helpmeet. So what did he do? Well, as you can recall from Sunday's study, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, verse 19, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to the cattle, to the fowl, to the beast. But Adam discovers there was no helpmeet found for him. And as we taught on Sunday, Mr. and Mrs. Rhino, Mr. and Mrs. Hippo, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Orangutan, and suddenly it would hit Adam, but there's no completer for me. I see male and female. I get it. What was the Lord doing as we talked on Sunday? He was making Adam aware of the need that God saw before Adam even knew that he had a need. That blesses me. Because when somebody says, well, I just feel this need in my heart, guess what? Who made you aware of that need? God did. 
For what reason? To frustrate? No. To fulfill. So Adam was there and he was naming the animals and suddenly it hits him that there's no help meet found for him. And then as we talked again on Sunday, God said to Adam or caused Adam literally, verse 21, to go to sleep. <laughs> not to beat the bushes, not to climb trees, not to find somebody, but rather just to let go and let God go to sleep, Adam. So, he falls asleep, and then, as he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam, verse 23, wakes up and says, Oh, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. I like that. Because she was taken out of the man. The word man is ish. The word woman is isha. Just simply adding an A. In other words, she took his name. He gave her his name. Added a letter but he gave her his name in this first marriage. It wasn't hyphenated. <laughs> he says, she's Isha. I'm Ish, she's Isha. You see. Interesting. Now, if you want information on what this means for you, who are wondering, man, will I ever get married? How will I know when I find the right one? Get the tape from Sunday. It's an important study. But I want to point out a couple of things that we didn't touch on that are very important for us tonight to consider from this story. Listen. Notice, first of all, that God took a rib from Adam's side. There in the garden, God takes a rib from Adam's side, when Adam is in a deep, death-like sleep, his side is opened up, and from out of his side comes a bride in another garden area, a place called Golgotha, Calvary, where there would be a garden tomb right there on the premise. Another Adam, the Bible calls him the last Adam. From out of the last Adam's side came a bride too. What do you mean? When Christ Jesus was in that deep sleep, if you would, He had died on the cross. A soldier sticks a spear in his side and from out of his side comes blood and water, the fluids of birthing. When a baby is birthed, the water breaks, the blood flows. Something is being birthed from the last Adam when he is in a deep sleep, if you would, when he had died. What was birthed from his side? A bride, you and me, were the bride of Christ. Understand this. From the side, the woman comes. The old adage is true. God didn't take a bone from Adam's head that woman should rule over him, or from his feet 
that she should be stepped on by the man or from his backside that she should be sat on, but from the rib, which is close to the heart. Guys, that's where she is to be. The Bible says so simply that marriage works on a couple of basic premises. He says in Ephesians 5 to you and me, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. You're to love your wife. How? Like Christ did. You're to die, hubby. Die? Yep. Die to your needs, your desires, your dreams, your thing. You are to let it go. You are to lay it down. You are to give it up. You are to die. Because that's what Christ did for us. Father, if it be possible, let this cup of death pass from me, he cried in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, Father. And he gave it up. He let it go. He died. And guys, the Bible says you are to love your wife. I am to love my wife. Just like Jesus loved the church. He died. He let it go. He gave it up. What? His desire. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go through this agony, this difficulty, but not my will, Father. And you, guy, brother, hubby, and me, were to die from the side, close to the heart, just like Christ's side was opened up to birth you and I. From the side, wifey, because Ephesians 5 also says to you specifically, you're to be by your husband's side. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husband. Stand by him. You came from the side of man and you will find fulfillment at the side of your man, not leading him nor lagging behind him, but standing by him, staying with him, being there for him, submitting to him. So simple, profoundly so. Husbands, die to your desires. Well, I just have to have this or it's got to be this way. Die, buddy, die. And wives, don't lead him. Don't drag your feet behind him. You came from the side, and it's at his side that you will find fulfillment and satisfaction. It's real, real basic. But you've got to understand something here. Now listen, wives, very, very carefully. The idea of something being taken from man's side and the rib spoken of doesn't mean the rib bone specifically. It means the chunk, literally. That's the Hebrew wording. The chunk. Something from the inside at his side was taken and given to the woman. The implication is gigantic. It's galactic. It means 
that man in the Garden of Eden and every man since then is missing something. It was given to the woman. In other words, wife, that guy that you're sitting next to, he's not all there. <laughs> and you're saying, that explains it. I've been wondering about that. He's not all there. Adam lost something. It was given to the woman, and that is why the woman is the completer for the man. The man gets it back when he has his arm around her, when he's standing with her. That is when man is completed. The word helpmeet literally means completer. What did man lose? I'll tell you what man lost. Something inside was taken from his side. It's amazing when you watch men and women. Time magazine came out with the cover one year ago. Cover story, perhaps you can remember it or perhaps you read it. This big revelation that psychologists are now concluding that there are differences between men and women. And I read the story and I go, give me a break. It's amazing. Of course, the Bible has said that all, there are fundamental, I'm not just talking about anatomy, I'm talking about the essence of a man is different than the essence of a woman. Man lost. What did he lose that was given to the woman from the side, from the inside, from close to the heart? What was lost? What was given to her? Sensitivity. Women innately have a greater sensitivity to God spiritually. They're worshipers. They're lovers of God. Men, we have to work on that. It's recovered through a lot of agony and through a lot of help by learning from our ladies. Sensitivity towards God and sensitivity towards people and sensitivity about life that was given to the woman. It was taken from the man. Man used to have it. But then God said it's not good that he's all by himself. I'm going to take this from him and place it in her, and she will complete him. That's why women are so important in church, in worship meetings, in prayer times. Women worship much easier than men do innately. Men, we, we have to learn to worship, and we must, and we will, and we do. But women, they express passion to the Lord much more freely, generally speaking. They have a greater hunger for the things of God. That's why Satan came to Eve. And what did he say? He didn't say, hey, want to look at some porno? He didn't say, want to do some cocaine? Hey, I got a hot stolen car. Let's drive away. He said, woman, do you want to be more spiritual still? If you eat of this, you'll be, like, you'll be even more godly, more godlike than you were previously. 
Satan appealed to Eve on the basis of her desire to be more godly. That's a woman. Adam saw right through it. Adam was not sucked in. Women have this desire, this passion. There's something that we lost, guys. Well, then what do we have? We have a thing called stability. That is, we don't have the highs that women have generally, nor do we have the vulnerabilities of the lows and the ability to be tricked in some ways that women do because of their sensitivity, their highs. We need each other. I saw that very clearly a number of years ago when I was asked by a group in town to be the male overseer of a female praise, worship, prayer, charismatic group that's national, international. They wanted to have a a pastoral presence there at the meeting, and I thought, great. So I did that. This was years ago. I was the pastoral covering advisor for this national organization. And I went to a few of their meetings, and at first I was real blessed because all these ladies, and they would worship, and they prayed, and tears flowed. and, 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 And man, unlike a men's prayer meeting where it's, Oh. Oh. God. (laughs) I mean, these gals, they prayed and they worshipped and they were on their knees and their hands were in the air. And I thought, this is great. These gals, they're worshippers. And then I quit. Because it got bizarre, too. I mean, it went way off into things that should not, in my strong opinion, have gone off into. And I saw right then, this is why men need women and women need men. There's a balance. Women are like Mazda Miatas. Men are like Mack trucks. Women are sporty in the things and they... There's, it's interesting the turns that they take, and, 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 and men just kind of... But we need each other, you see. And the Bible makes that very, very clear. Oh, not that you can't have an, a men's meeting or a women's meeting, but I'm saying as a principle, as a body, and in our own lives individually, man, we need each other. Now, what am I getting at? Listen, wife. If you don't see this, you're going to be frustrated all the days of your life. Your husband is never going to be this side of heaven what you're craving him to be. Oh, he can go to all the men are from Mars and women are from Venus seminars. And he can work real hard at, because he's from Mars, learning how to speak Venetian. And he can go to the courses and buy the tapes and he can take all kinds of seminars and get videos and go to counseling and counseling and counseling. But guess what? He's never going to get it. Oh, he can work at it. He might make a little progress and you can pat him on the back. And, but <clears throat> he's missing. He's not all there. 
what are you saying, John? I, I was real excited about going to the next seminar to get my husband to, to be something. He's not going to get it. Well, thanks a lot. This is real helpful. Isn't there any man that has it all together? Yes. Yes. A thousand times yes. The last Adam. He's not called the second Adam, which means there might be a third one. He is called the what? The last Adam. That means there's no other one. The last Adam. He's not missing a thing. How come? Because he wasn't born the way that your hubby was born, from a male and a female coming together. He was born of a virgin in a whole different manner. You have the first Adam who used to have it all until something was taken from him. And when that happened, now he is completed by her. And then you have the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who was born in an entirely different manner. And he will be the one wifey, that will listen to you by the hour and walk with you in the garden. Oh, your hubby can try and learn those things. and We can learn to fake it a bit, but you know, there's something fundamentally in us. And great is the day when a man, when a woman finally say, I get it, I understand. We are different. And we're going to talk about those differences even further in our study next time because it gets even further complicated because of an issue called sin. But tonight, you got to know this. When you, wife, start saying, okay, then I'm going to seek what I am craving from the last Adam, from Jesus Christ, you will find that you have taken pressure off your husband. And you will be able then to enjoy him and not expect something from him which he cannot give to you. If I am not drawing strength and satisfaction in what I need from Christ Jesus, whether man or woman, I will then look at Tammy and expect her to meet those needs, which she can't meet in me either, because she doesn't have the full package either. But if I'm looking to the Lord, drawing from the Lord, then I'm not putting pressure on her. If she is looking to the Lord, drawing from the Lord, she's not putting pressure on me. And then, only then, can we truly enjoy our marriage. But if you are saying, if my wife would just, or if my husband would just, wow, mm, 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 there's going to be such a pressure placed on the relationship that it will be collapsing. Wife, understand this. Your husband is missing something. But there is one that will meet the deepest need of your being. And he's available around the clock. No appointment necessary. Talk to him. Sit with him. Walk by him. Learn of him. So, 
Interesting. Because from the man's side was taken this rib. And now, the man and the woman, you see, as they each are incomplete of themselves, yet realizing that, now they do something interesting. Because God says in verse 24, as he's presiding over this first marriage ceremony, it's the first garden wedding, <laughs> therefore, he says, shall a man, listen, leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Interesting. Now listen here very carefully. Okay, John, I understand what you're getting at. I have found it to be true, too, you may say, that my husband's not all there. And yet, that's true, that what we're really craving and needing is the Lord in our lives. And yet, then is there any hope for us to be in unity? Yes. Is there any hope for us to be naked and open and not ashamed, but rather celebrating the relationship that we have been placed in? Yes. It says right here, they shall be, the last phrase in verse 24, they shall be one flesh. Not they should be, not they might be, not they could be, but they shall be. They shall be one flesh. There's going to be unity. And there'll be this glorious openness. Nakedly open with each other. Fully in love. And united together. Realizing the, the incompleteness. The incapacity of, of the man to truly satisfy the woman. And really vice versa. But at the same time, having established that fact, there can be, there will be, real, grand unity. It's based on two things. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And the two shall then be one flesh. Two conditions, two requirements for real unity. Leaving every other and cleaving to each other. When the Lord here says that a man shall leave his father and mother, he is talking about relationships that are most important. Man, you are to leave the most important relationships. Every other relationship, you are to leave, and then you are to cleave. Leaving every other, cleaving to each other. Please listen here. I'm almost done, but this is really huge and important. Man, you must leave father, mother. Relationships that interfere in any way. with the relationship that you have been given on that special wedding day. Leave it. Leave it. Leave what? 
Mommy and Daddy, you used to tell your problems to them. Share your dreams with them. Get counsel from them. Leave it. But not just Mommy and Daddy. That's not a problem for most of you. It's that relationship in the office. You're pouring out your frustrations. You're sharing your dreams. You're, you're talking things over. And all too often, that person that you're pouring out your frustrations to, sharing with, will be a female, fellas. Nothing sexual. Nothing sensual. But just because women have what you lack, which is sensitivity. Most guys, when you begin to share your problems, they'll just say, oh, grow up. Get a life. Let's go play racquetball. But that woman in the office, that lady at the fellowship, she'll say, really? Oh, I feel your pain. It, yeah. Hmm. Now, 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 now you're not attracted to her. There's nothing romantic going on. There's no sensuality yet. But you begin to share with her. She's just a, a gal at work. She's a colleague of yours. She might even be your boss or a co-laborer or a secretary or whatever it might be. But but you find yourself just kind of sharing, oh man, the business deal didn't go through and, and, and I'm bummed out by that and, and this isn't working right. And she begins to show because that's the way women are, sensitivity. And then you begin to share with her more and more. Just over a cup of coffee, just walking to your next appointment, just whatever it might And you're just sharing. And you go, man, this gal... And then you go home. And Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He'll love one and hate the other. And suddenly you look at your wife, fella, and she'll bug you. You don't even know why. Because you don't have any romantic feelings for her. There's nothing going on. But yet, somehow, this gal at work, that gal the church, she just understands. And your wife, I wish she would cut her hair. So she cuts her hair. And then you say, I wish you'd grow your hair. She grows her hair. I wish you would clean the house. She cleans the house. I wish she wouldn't be so fanatical about the house. So she, No matter what she does, listen... No matter what she does, it's not going to be quite right. Wives understand that. Something's going on. Because he is not leaving all other relationships, but is pouring his frustration, his treasure, his spiritual insights, whatever, his work needs, be they what it might, he's pouring treasure into her 
And that is going to be hugely problematic in every instance. Because the Word of God says, Jesus taught us, wherever a man's treasure is, there will be his heart also. Nah, not me. I can, nav- I, I, can, I can pour out my frustrations or share my vision or, or, or talk about my dream with this lady. She's just a buddy. Jesus said, wherever a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. And if you think you know more than the Lord, you're in a heap of trouble. That's why Paul tells this young pastor that he's raising up, Timothy, if any woman has a question, let her ask her husband. Well, my husband doesn't know nothing, sometimes the wife may say. Pastor, you're so wonderful. Could I please talk to you? And we've got to say, talk to your hubby. And then he'll come to me or us or whoever, and we then get to disciple him. And, in, and he can go back to you and share with you, and that's the way Paul said it's supposed to be. If a woman has a question, don't begin counseling and dialoguing and sharing. No. Now, I'm sharing this tonight because we have a problem here. Many of you know these things, but we're still seeing people not getting it. They still feel, well, that's true for them or for her or for him. But I can share with my secretary. I can share with this person that's in my koinonia group. I can share with her. I can No. Not if you want unity in your marriage. In the past few weeks alone, we've seen five or six good brothers and sisters hit the skids and rocks because of this very issue. They did not leave every other. And you can say, well, I don't know if I buy that. And you can continue to joke with her at the office or share your heart with him because it works both ways in reality. He's just a guy that I teach with or she's just a girl that I work beside or whatever. We're not attracted. You may not be, but it will happen ultimately. You share your treasure and your heart will follow. We are seeing marriages collapse. Never or rarely because someone comes in a slinky negligee seductively to someone. That's not the that's not the trap. You guys are far too advanced for that. Where the trap is is when you're just praying with that sister, guys. Or you're praying with that brother, gals, sharing concerns and questions and 
all the rest, and you have not left every other. You thought that you would be. You think that you are an exception, and there are no exceptions. It will take a toll. And your other, your spouse, your wife or your hubby will feel that. And, and there will be tension in the home. And you will say, why don't I like her? Why don't I like him? Because your treasure is going in another direction. You leave them. And that is why you get those same two people that are on the rocks. And if you could get them away and put them on a desert island for ten years, they would work it out. <laughs> but first you've got to get the other party out of the equation. Listen. There will not be unity if there is another in the equation. Now I'm talking about, again, that member of the opposite sex. Paul makes that very clear. And he says, for younger women, maybe they're not married. Maybe their husband is not around. What should they do? Paul says, the younger women are to get instruction from the older. Who? Pastors? Older brothers? Older guys at work? No, from the older women. That's the way it has to be. Part two. You leave every other. A man shall leave father, mother. That, that, that significant person, those significant people, you leave those folks, you, you, you leave the other, and you cleave. What does that mean? You've got to leave, and you've got to cleave. The word cleave means just what it means. You cleave. That's when you have unity. You leave you cleave. Intimacy, romance, sexuality. Because this is what the world doesn't understand. The Bible tells us, and the world doesn't have a clue about this, they are completely in a fog, they don't get it, they're completely ignorant of it. Sex is more than just two bodies coming together. The Bible teaches that it's two souls being made into one. That's why the Bible argues strongly, do not defraud your partner. Because it's not just a matter of physical satisfaction. That's really rather irrelevant. It's a matter of soulical division. If a man and a woman are not cleaving, coming together in intimacy, their souls, you see, will not be in unity. And that is why the Bible says if you commit fornication, sex outside of marriage, you're destroying your soul. You're giving your soul away. It's your soul, it's not your body. It's more than your body. It's your essence. You're giving it away. And yet in marriage, it's not giving it away. It's giving it to each other. And you're coming into unity by means of cleaving sexually. 
The implications are quite important. Well, I would cleave to him if I, if I felt more love for him. Backwards. I would cleave to her if I had feelings for her. Backwards. It's so ironic. People say, well, I would be more passionate, more romantic. I would be cleaving if I just had different feelings. You don't get it. That's the way that you get those feelings is by cleaving. That is what sex does. It's not just for procreation. It does that too. That is having kids. But it's for unification. The two become one. Your soul actually is merged together in that cleaving union. If you don't do that, you're going to find there is a very real separating, distancing. And this is the frustration that so often we who work with couples that are going through difficulties have. The husband or the wife will say, well, if I just had different feelings for her, I would give myself to her. Or if I just had feelings for him, I would give myself to him. In reality, that's the way that you find those feelings growing is by doing. But this is true in every area of spiritual life. The Lord says, step out and I'll part the water. We say, part the water and I'll step out. The Lord is always saying, you do and I will. We say, Lord, you do and I will. And the Lord says, that's not faith. That's not the way it works. You begin to give yourself to him. And the feelings will follow. How come? Because now you're pouring your treasure, your very soul. You're pouring your treasure into him. It's one of those simple, simple truths that makes all the difference in the world. God says the two shall be one, naked and not ashamed, totally open, celebrating each other when? When they leave every other and when they cleave to each other. But John, not me, but I have this friend that... The reason that my friend doesn't cleave is because, well, the feelings, the heart. Listen, I want to share something with you that's very crucial for you to have a firm grasp on. I understand the heart. Difficulties. Feelings that aren't there. I can't change my heart. But I can change my mind. Now God, He's the only one that can change my heart, but He won't change my mind. But if I choose to change my mind, God will change my heart. You've heard that before, eh? Listen, mister, listen, missus, listen, single person, and don't forget this. Feelings follow. 
the decision that you make mentally and the action that you give sacrificially. We say, if the feelings were there, I would write her poetry. The Lord says, write her poetry and the feelings will come. If the feelings were there, I would bake him cookies. Bake him cookies and the feelings will come. If the feelings were there, I would cleave like the Bible tells me to. Cleave and the feelings will be there for you. Right away? Sometimes. Other times it's a process of just doing what the Bible tells you to. You change your mind. You change your mind and you say, no more excuses for not cleaving. No more rationalization for not leaving. I will leave every other. And I will cleave to my spouse. And if you do, there will be unity, celebration, because that's what God's Word told Adam and Eve to do in the very first marriage seminar in the Garden of Eden. Leave, cleave. Can I share my heart with you? Not that I haven't been. <laughs> Last night, I had fully intended to get through at least chapter 6. Halfway through the study, and I was pretty much on pace, believe it or not. But I knew what the Holy Spirit was nudging me or causing me to do. I know that many of you know these things. I know that some of you could give this study perhaps even more thoroughly or eloquently than I did. I also know this. There are people here who are not leaving. And there are people here who are not cleaving. And you've got all your reasons. And I believe that the Holy Spirit desired for this to be talked about last night and this night. Saying it's not enough to just think about it or even agree with it. You've got to do it. And if there is another, fellas, that worker, that friend. She's just a friend. She's just so sensitive. You will end up despising your wife to one degree or another. You leave her with firmness, with finality. Tonight, right now, if any of you women are involved in another, you leave him. I'm not even suggesting you've done anything sexually. What I am saying is you're on a road that will lead to heartbreak. And even if nothing happens sexually, romantically, the fissure will still happen in your marriage and in your family. 
You can believe this or you can close your heart and ears to this. But you'll be a very wise person if tonight before you get out of that pew and go back to your car and drive home, if you whisper a prayer and say, Father, I've heard your word and I will as of now absolutely leave her, leave him. Even though the world would say, there's nothing wrong, you're just friends. I'm not saying be rude and crude and when a woman comes up to you, go, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying you can't say hi or be cordial or friendly. But can I share my heart with you? The Victorians weren't all that wrong when there was propriety, when there were just concerns about those kinds of things and years past. Now it's cool to have male-female interactions during coffee breaks and going for walks together and sharing your dreams and your work situation. It didn't used to be that way a few generations ago and there was reason for it. We laugh at those people now. We make fun of the Victorian prudishness when women would call men Mr. and men would call women Miss. There was reasons for all of that. And I'm not saying going back to that, don't misunderstand me. But I'm saying, boy, we've really messed up homes and families and marriages because we have failed to understand the reasoning for those times back then. Decide now. Determine tonight. Pray even while you're... You don't have to bow your head or close your eyes because that might be a giveaway to your spouse. <laughs> but you can pray right, right where you're sitting and you can say right now, tonight, got it. It's done. And you can say, starting tonight, I'm going to cleave to my husband. I'm not going to defraud him or defraud her because I understand there's a soulical thing that happens. And the two were naked, totally open, not ashamed. What a fabulous picture. That's the way God intends it to be. Let's pray. It's so fascinating, Father, to study the Scriptures and to see how profoundly simple things can be and how we complicate it with our rationalizations. How we think that we're an exception, that it won't affect us and we can not leave and we can not cleave and get away with it. But we understand tonight that your ways are right. And we choose, Lord, to get back to basics again. Many of us do. Father, I know there's all kinds of knowledge that people can be drawn to. Seminars and men are from Mars and all the rest. 
Father, your advice to us is not men are from Mars, but it's very down to earth. And I pray that your Spirit would please apply this to all of our hearts, to every heart, in the way that it should be applied. For those that are parents and grandparents, may they give wise counsel in these matters to their children and grandkids. For those that are newly married, may they have ears to hear. For those that are in the middle years, may they understand and be aware of the vulnerabilities. For those that are single, Father, may they determine right now what their marriage, should you lead them in that way, is going to be. And where we have failed, for you know our frames that we are but dust. You know what we're made of, Father. And you tell us that you have compassion on our situations. We now pray that your blood would cleanse us. Your spirit would fill us. And that you would, Lord, enable us right now to be doers of the word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.